Uh, All right, so have y'all, did y'all dig into the notes from last session? They're really good. Everybody is looking at me with blank stares. Did you lose it after you left Bible study last night, last, last Wednesday? Okay, you found, okay, everybody's holding them up. All right, good. I had to ask you. Now, you yours. realize that this is, this is top-notch stuff now. This is Dr. David Crutchley, who is now the religious guy, the religion professor at Carson Newman, wrote all this. Uh, these are his study notes for New Testament when I was in seminary at Southwestern. So this is top-notch scholarship you have in your hands. So read it. You'll, yeah, look, you'll, I mean, you'll learn I've, something like I did. Oh, I know. know. I mean, I know. It's, I, it's good stuff. Man, I, I know you read it, brother. I, I know you read it. It is. It's really good. I know it. You're a reading machine. No, I'm not. Okay, uh, 605, let's dig in here. Intertestamental period. Boom, boom, here we go. All right. 400 years of silence. Now, I'm just going to buzz through these because I've got, a, I've got a, a, a picture I want to show you. We've got 400 years of silence in the intertestamental period. And so the main thing that Dr. Stringfellow does is helps us to understand the condition of the Jewish people uh, at the beginning of the New Testament. And tonight, probably the bulk of the time we will spend talking about is a group of, uh, of agitators that Jesus dealt with. Can you believe that there was a group of agitators for Jesus? Can you believe that? And what were their names? You remember? Pharisee, Pharisees, Sadducees, and the Senior Zealots. Deacons. <laughs> awesome. Better be careful, man. They're going to string you up at Dickens meeting. Uh, the Essenes were more like were more like monks that lived out in caves that kind of left Jerusalem and kind of went out into the into the desert. So they weren't really they were there some, but they weren't nearly as much as the other three. So, so during like all of this history we've been talking about with the Greeks and with Alexander the Great and the Persian Empire and the and the Jews going back to Israel and the destruction of those kingdoms and all that, all those pressures and all that cultural change um, led to this, this production of these, theologically, of these different yeah. sects. And when I say sects, I always like to spell it, S-E-C-T-S. Right. Uh, right. So everybody knows what I'm talking about because one time that went south in a major confusing. way. Yep. Yes. Yep. So... so so that, that's, that's where we are, uh, where we were last Wednesday. So I'm going to zip on through this. Now, here's the diaspora map that I found that I really like. Now, when we talk about uh, diaspora who, or diaspora, who knows what that means? Disp yes, yes. The, the, now, this is critical because, because when you get into the New Testament, and tonight you're going to learn about this new structure because what happened in 587, what was destroyed that changed the face of Judaism forever? Begins with a T. The, the temple. temple, exactly. The temple, yes. In the temple, okay. So no northern kingdom is destroyed, taken to Assyria, deportation to Assyria. Southern kingdom is destroyed, deportation to Babylon, then a return, a return to the Holy Land 70 years later. But still some of them left. So we have got Jews scattered out everywhere and since there is no temple they have to meet somewhere and so they begin to meet in a place called the yes in the synagogue so what you see here in the diaspora this is very important diaspora i don't know what the, it's diaspora diaspora one of those two I've heard the, both. The, theophilus or theophilus Theophile, right yeah, yeah what what happens during this time is that when the jews cluster in these different areas they have to have a place to come together to establish theological authority and so forth. And so that place becomes the synagogue, which means assembly. Okay, so that, that's the diaspora right there. And again, I think you'll hear us say it over and over and 
over again, but the temple was one place, right? Mm -hmm. And then synagogues spread out into multiple places of worship. And what is this setting up perfectly for when the gospel arrives? The spreading of the gospel, right? The, the, the mass and the rapid spreading of the gospel exactly. throughout the ancient world. Exactly. Now, now, where we ended last week was we went all the way through Syria. And the Syrian, um, remember when Alexander the Great died, his empire splintered into several different pieces. You had the Ptolemies were in Egypt. And then you had the Seleucids were, were the Syrians. And eventually the Syrians kind of became to dominate. And they began to persecute the Jewish people uh, to a degree in which they, they had never really experienced before or, or after the, the domination and the destruction of the kingdom. So this was kind of a, uh, this was like a new, a new thing for that new generation of, um, of, uh, of, Jew, of Jews. So we have Antiochus Epiphanes, the Syrian rule. I read you that passage. Remember that passage I read to you out of the Apocrypha where, where Antiochus Epiphanes took all of those sons and, I mean, tortured them, cut their tongues out, cut their arms off, cut their hands off, their arms off, their legs off, and then threw what was left of their body and, and, and burned their body in the flames. So, I mean, this was a, this was a, a, a serious, yeah. serious, serious persecution, uh, unlike anything you've probably ever, ever seen or heard about. And, so. you know, it's interesting because these, these emperors and these rulers and these pagan nations, they hated the Jews during this time because their practices were so irregular and so weird and so strange. Like... Why do, you, why do you take off on this day and don't do any work on this day? That just seems crazy to us. Like, why can't you be productive on this day? So they started seeing like, things like this and not eating pork. Well, why won't you eat pork? It's a great uh, meat to eat, and it's, it's you know, flavorful. Yeah. And yeah. why won't you do this? And so it enraged people like yeah, and, Antioch. Uh, Antioch. Yeah. yeah, because yeah. It was, they were so set apart yeah. and so different, those who were faithful and, and were truly Jews. And so, yeah, kind, exactly. of, kind of like someone else who should be set apart today, right? Who's that? Us, <laughs> Christians, right? Yes. right? Yeah, believers in Christ. We should be set apart from the culture in many different ways. Yeah, there's some pictures of Antiochus Epiphanes, and the more I study about him, the more I wish I was the guy that punched him in the nose. But yeah, yeah. But he, he was a, he was a he was an evil an evil man, Absolutely. to say the least. Okay, uh, the Syrian rule. We got all the way through that. All right, the Roman rule. So here we go. So now now we are kind of caught up to speed. And where we are in the Bible right now on Sunday mornings, because what book are we looking at? The book of Luke. And in the second chapter, what do we read? Caesar Augustus decreed that a census be done. So here we are with Roman rule. Now, did we mention much about the Maccabees last session? Um, a little bit, yeah. yeah but you just, go ahead if you got uh, something. Well, no, I just thought it was really interesting in, in your... Uh, just read it. Go and read about the Maccabees. It's kind of toward the end. You go through all the Roman rule... Um, and then it kind of talks about the history of uh, the Maccabees, how they came about, why they're named, uh, who they're named. Uh, the, that's also the Hasmonean rule. Um, that's, you know, the equivalent of the Maccabees. Uh, Judas Maccabee. The hammer. They called him Maccabe, uh, Maccabees as a nickname, and it means the hammer, um, the extinguisher, uh, <laughs> who, right. is, who is like unto this. I mean, this is yeah. kind of who this guy, this was his title. And really, they were kind of a warring group. I mean, they did oh, real yes, warfare yes. Um, against the Syrian yeah. rulers. Oh, yeah. They, I mean, a lot, I can imagine with the messianic expectation that, that has always been there with the Jewish people that when the Maccabees were active and actually routing, mm. uh, routing the Syrians, there were many that believed that they were probably 
you know, Messiah or a type of Messiah, yeah. but it was intertestamental period, so it was you know, so it was not considered that by scholarship. Right. But uh, but surely they probably thought they were. Yeah, so. and reading this will give you a different picture on Hanukkah, right? Uh, yes, I think we think of like we just think about Christmas and we associate everything with Christmas as ah peace and love and mm-hmm. I mean you know around Hanukkah was about war. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, y'all do know the back the backstory for Hanukkah since he brought it up. But that was when the relighting and the rededication of the temple happened after. Antiochus Epiphanes had gone in there and sacrificed a what? A pig on the altar. I mean, that's like the ultimate desecration of the uh, of the Jewish holy of holies is to take a pig and sacrifice the pig on the on the uh, on the altar. So they they cleaned it all up and they went back in there and they rededicated the temple. So Hanukkah, that's what Hanukkah celebrates. So when you hear the Jews celebrating Hanukkah, that's what that's memorializing. So I'm glad yeah, you brought just, that up because I think we did forget to mention that last last week. Yeah, I like this little segment that he has in here. Uh, your professor uh, Judas was an adept guerrilla tactician. And he defeated Syrian forces repeatedly. In 164 BC, Judas entered Jerusalem, and the temple was cleansed of the idol altar and restored and rededicated on the mm-hmm. uh, 25th of Kislev, uh, which is the 14th of December, mm-hmm. three years after uh, this desecration. Daily sacrifices were recommenced, and the Jews marked this event with a religious holiday, Hanukkah. Yeah. So there you go. I think yeah. that's just And that's really in your notes. He's reading straight out of your notes. If yep. you want to study up on that, you can. There's, he's got a lot of detail in here. And, of course, talking about battles that Israel's involved in, I mean, they're, they're still at war today, right? Yeah. What, yeah. What's, what's happened today? I, I have not looked at the news today. Is, it, are they still, is everything still wide open or what? Okay, so it's still wide open. There's still rockets going in, and the Iron Dome is still shooting them down every day. Okay, okay. Uh, sorry, I'm scratching so much, but the mosquitoes, uh, have y'all been taken away by mosquitoes over the past couple of weeks? They have, like, taken our home away. Blood it's donor. unbelievable. It's just, yeah, blood donor. All right, Judea, the Roman rule. So Judea became a province of the Roman Empire, okay? So when the Maccabean line ended, Antipater was appointed over Judea by Julius Caesar in, in 47 B.C. So this begins kind of the puppet kings over over the Jews, okay? And th- this continues for, for a long time, okay? So Antipater appointed Herod. Y'all ever heard that name before? Herod the Great? Okay, his son, governor of Galilee, he was appointed king of the Jews by Rome in 40 B.C. He murdered, get this now, he murdered almost all of his own family, including his wife and sons, what did you say? It was safer to be a... Uh, some, uh, one scholar, it may have been Josephus, uh, mentioned about Herod that it was safer to be one of his pigs in his palace than to be one of his One sons. of his family members. Yeah. yeah. So, so this guy, when, when you heard all the harsh uh, rhetoric come in the, in the messages over the past, in, over in the series of Luke, the reason why that is is because Herod really was a megalomaniac murderer. I mean, he really was. You know, I think it's That's really... not an exaggeration. I mean, history oh, yeah, bears that out. Right, he Clearly. was. Um, I think it's really ironic that he receives this title, King of the Jews, um, right, coming into this period of time, this very, the most, one of the most unique periods of time in all of history. We know that because of what? Christ, his incarnation, right? This was a, this was a momentous moment that God had been planning from the foundation of the world for Christ to come at this moment, and this one guy just happens to be called King of the Jews, 
uh, you know, who's a yeah. wicked man. And then ironically, what is written on top of Jesus uh, on, the, on his cross? King of the Jews. King of the Jews. Yep. Rightfully so, right? Right. And they mistreated him. So, so it, just to play off that, it's interesting you, you, you mentioned that. So you actually had, you actually had two. You had, you had Caesar Augustus, who was considered a son of God because, because the Roman emperors at that time were deified, uh, yeah. believed to be gods, and, and the populace began what they called the Roman cultus, which was that was where the incense burning uh, in neighborhoods and, they, and the, the Roman citizens would come out and literally worship the government and worship the emperors. And then you have Herod, who's, yeah. who is the, the puppet king of the Jews, both at the same time. And then, and then while both of those, both of that false worship is going on, the true son of God actually comes into the world. That's yeah. really interesting. Yeah. All right. Uh, he, this was the Herod the Great who was king when our Lord was born. And we've talked about that for several times. Okay, so the political background changed the Jews, but no more than changes in their Jewish religious customs. So how does a political background change the Jews? How does, it, or how does, how does a political background change anything? Now, I mean, I'm asked, that question's loaded because you know exactly what I'm going for, right? I mean, how has the political landscape of America changed the church? Think about that. I mean, we don't want to fight against what everybody else thinks is okay, right? I mean, we... we we, we want to fight against abortion. We want to, now, the, you know, a lot of people believe it's okay to abort children. We don't believe that. We believe in, in pro-life things. But that pressure, hey, Jim, that pressure continues uh, to come. So it's the same thing. It's this cultural pressure that comes against the Jews and that some of them, like the, Hellen, the Hellenism, the, right. are we, we going to raise our children speaking Hebrew or are we going to raise our children speaking Greek? Yeah. Are we going to raise our children according to the traditions of our fathers uh, in Judaism or are we going to begin to adopt some of the Greek mythology? Yeah. I mean, it's all of these different cultural pressures that begin to, you know, to cause change. It was the perfect storm, really. I mean, because when you had the Roman rule, when Rome came in, I, I, I love this. Again, I have to go back to your notes. They are fantastic. That's why you got them. Um, I mean, seriously, I'm going to try to just, I really enjoyed them as I read them. Uh, they're so thorough. Um, Roman rule, hear this. I thought this was really great, uh, great to see the major shift that took place. And again, all of this is important because it's history that helps us understand the New Testament. Um, Roman rule, this is what he says about it. Uh, or this is what uh, C.K. Barrett says about it. A world weary of ci uh, civil war with its uh, attendant social and economic uh, disturbance, disturbance and distress, was uh, prepared to welcome the victor of Actium, which I take to be Augustus, a savior after all. What more did the average man ask of his gods than peace, security, and social welfare Augustus gave him? So this major shift takes place in the intertestamental period from kind of a chaotic background with all of these different rulers at war with one another and then really Rome kind of brings everything together and you're starting to see again what we talked about with Alexander a little bit but then now even more solidified with Rome a more uh, uh, you know a one uh, system economic system uh, Pax Romana a, yeah the peace of Pax Rome. Romana yeah. uh, the, the peace of Rome right uh, right. Which, again, really creates the, the, the best environment for when Christ comes on the scene for the gospel to spread. Yeah. It's incredible. And, and, and for, the, for the most part, the Syrian persecution that we, just, that we just studied about was probably one of the more fierce. Now, Rome would eventually yeah. you know, destroy, uh, you know, destroy Jerusalem in, in AD 70, but for the most part, they allowed them to practice peaceably 
for the most part. Now, there were, there were occasional uprisings that they did meddle in it, and they did, uh, as we know, the, the, the Sadducees were kind of, were kind of corrupted by, you know, by power and money and yeah. things of that nature, which is why we have these different groups. So there were these new groups, right. Right. Uh, such as the scribes, the Pharisees, and new institutions that we've already talked about a little bit, the synagogue and the Sanhedrin, okay? So the Sanhedrin was actually a part that was in the temple, was like a ruling body, and then you had the synagogue, which was the little mini temples, so to speak, that were scattered out all through yeah. the, the, you know, the empire. Yeah. All right, because of these changes in Jewry, the, the period between Malachi and Matthew is important, as we have said numerous times while we've been studying this. Now, there's a picture uh, of a scribe. I don't know if you've ever seen a scribe before, but that's kind of what a scribe does. A scribe spends all of their time uh, basically copying yeah. uh, manuscripts and preserving manuscripts. So one manuscript would be there, and it would, it would be there in storage until it began to get old, or they began to fear it was time to recopy it, and they would recopy it and recopy it and recopy it and recopy it. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very meticulous, disciplined thing that they did. Yeah, something I failed to mention, too, is even with Alexander, uh, you know, when you had Koine Greek kind of become the, the common language, uh, this is when they translated the Old Testament. The Septuagint, into, yeah, yeah, that's right. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which, again, is so very important because all of the New Testament quotations uh, from the apostles themselves was from the Septuagint. Vast so, majority, absolutely, yep. yep. So it may have not been all of them. But it's it was, va vast majority, okay. vast yep. majority. That's another, that's an older picture I found for you uh, of a scribe with his... Uh, I guess you would call that an easel with him sitting there copying the, copying the scriptures. All right, and there's another one I found for you. Which one, which one of those is your favorite? That guy. He looks so intense. Let's take a vote. Who likes him? Okay. Who likes him? Boy. It's a little oh, boy. Oh, it's that, a little was, that one dropped out there. Who likes him? Okay. <laughs> He's got a long right. beard. I like this that. This guy wins for some reason. He is the winner. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. He, he probably he probably is the closest to what it really looked like. That's why I put it in there because I kind of thought the same thing. Hmm. But that's but there they are. They're the scribes. Um, you know, one thing to remember: no word processors, right? No typewriters, no big pens. What were these? No. Spell no spell check. check. <laughs> no spell check. You know, it's, it's, it's. And, and man, again. Dab and write. We dab and write. Dab and write. Whole books of the Bible. Imagine that. Imagine that. I, it's amazing to me that scholars who are supposed to be like our smartest people in our society, that they look at the tradition of manuscripts that have been copied. I mean, they understand. They should be able to understand this argument. And they see not only does the Bible have more manuscripts than any other ancient text in the world. Correct. But also it has the closest amount of time from when the autographs, which Correct. were the originals, were written. Correct. To the span of time when they wrote, when Correct. they copied the manuscripts. Correct. Uh, some of them as close, I think, as 100 years. Yeah, not, not only that, but you can... Uh, just the church fathers themselves, Tertullian, um, and, and the, those... Uh, yeah. um, Arrhenius, um, Polycarp. Augustine. 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 The, those, the, those men, those leaders, what, 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 you have, what you read and what you 
what you find out when you study about them is they're lectionaries, okay? Like, like the sermon that I bring, that I write, the notes that I bring up to the pulpit every Sunday and preach to you guys. That's what they would call their lectionaries. Their lectionaries contained so much scripture that you could literally, they estimate from the samples that they have found that you could rewrite the entire Bible from the notes the church fathers used that they preach from. How amazing is that? What does that tell you? That the majority of what they preach was what? <clears throat> scripture and nothing else, exactly. So that's one of my goals, man. I want, all, my, I want my notes just to be all, all Scripture, man. That's just, it. You could, yep. That's right. Huh? Oh, yes, yes. Now on they're all on, 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 on a hard drive. On a hard drive, yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Hopefully that doesn't bonk out. It won't. Then you'll be in trouble. It won't. No. Okay, cool. All right, so let's keep going. The oral law, after being given orally for generations, was committed to writing about the end of the second century A.D. into the Talmud, and it remains the authority for Jews to this day. Has anybody here read the Talmud? I'm just curious. I haven't. I, I've read a, a little bit of it, but not. I would, I would love to read the whole thing. It's several volumes. It's pretty big. But the Talmud is like a, is like a commentary, on the, is a Jewish commentary on the Old Testament. So if you wanted to go back and, and find out what the Jews thought about the, the sacred scriptures, Read the Talmud, and it will tell you the interpretation that they, that they Which believe. Which would be really cool. It would be really cool. To read. Yep. In our Lord's day, would be in the time that Jesus, in the times of Jesus, the oral law was still mainly oral. Now, what does that mean, oral law? Help me understand. What, what do you all think that means? Verbal, okay, but, but go a little bit further than that. Word, word of mouth from one person to the other. But they were responsible for knowing the entire Pentateuch by memory. Yep. Yes. By, by the time they were 12, right? By the they time they were 12. I, I believe that's right. Now, I've always heard that. I've never read that, but I've always been taught that. Sure and a lot that. of people uh, believe, like the passage we're looking at Sunday in the Bible, where Jesus, uh, you know, the parents lost him for, for several days. Yep. And when they yep. find him, he's 12 years old and he's in the temple, yeah. that, 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 that that coincides with that. The reason why he's 12 is because technically that was the day that he became re, you know, responsible as a, a child, for, yeah. as a man for the, for the law. So, so the oral law was, was and, and that's another reason why when, when people begin to say that, that, the, that the apostles were, were illiterate and they couldn't read and write, probably not true because all Jewish boys, irregardless of what their upbringing was, they were responsible for the law. Right. So most likely they knew, they knew the law. Well, and their interactions with Jesus would, would imply that at least they knew something. Yeah. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Okay, so he, uh, Jesus contradicts his obstacles, the oral law, in Matthew 15, 1 through 9, and in the Sermon on the Mount, he had six times, ye have heard that it said, but I say unto you, now I need to add something to what we've been saying. The oral law is not only just like reciting exactly the verbatim the scripture, but it's also what the the traditions that the elders had added upon upon the law of God as well, yeah. and that's what and that's what Jesus condemned so hard. Yeah, I, I I found this a really good illustration that one of my professors uh, gave us one time in class. He said, you know, the hedge of the Torah is what they call it. The hedge, what he's referring to is the hedge of the Torah. They put a hedge of laws around the laws. Yeah. And it, the heads of the Torah acted almost like if, let's just say that God spoke audibly to us and said, you can no longer have dairy. We would lament and weep a little bit. But anyway, um, so when we would go to the grocery store as Christians and we could no longer have dairy, 
um, you know, we would no, no longer grab the milk off the shelf or the cheese and all that good stuff. And, um, but what they started to do, the Pharisees, is if, let's just say, David uh, was a devout Christian, you know, he's like, man, we are not going to have dairy and we are not going to have cheese. We're going to follow the Lord, you know. And uh, so he happens to see me in Publix one day, and I'm walking down the dairy aisle. <laughs> but I'm not grabbing anything. I'm just walking down it. Uh, this is what they started to do. They started to say, how dare you? You know, how dare you? You're walking down the dairy aisle. And it's like, it's going to be a temptation to, right. to drink milk. Don't, <laughs> so don't, don't even go down the aisle. Right. Yeah, you can't even go down the aisle anymore. You know, and it's just like, and this is what they did, you know, because I was not breaking any laws, right, in that illustration. But, um, but certainly this is just to give you a picture of what they were starting to do. Yeah, well, they were, they were just starting to add. It, it was like they were so afraid to break the law of God, that they added laws upon top of laws upon top of laws to remove just the most remote chance that you would, specifically the Sabbath. I can't remember the exact number, but I want to say there was like 600 additional laws or 800 additional laws placed yeah. upon the Sabbath. Yeah. So that, so that, and it got to be to where it was work to obey the laws on the Sabbath, that you couldn't even relax because if you, if you even walked outside, walking was work or, right. or doing something was work. Right. You couldn't literally do anything. So yep. that's what Jesus was condemning. So his way of referring to the scriptures was what? Read that. It is written. So that's, that's how Jesus, when he, whenever he was you know, appealing to the authority of the scripture, it is written. Okay. So here's the, here's the passage. Why don't you read, Colton? Yeah, uh, I don't have it there. I'll do it here. Uh, Matthew 15, 1 through 9. Then the Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for, for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother, What you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God, you hypocrites. Uh, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their, hearts, their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Right. So what, what Christ was saying is, is that that is a tradition that was overruling the command. Yeah. And so when a tradition overrules the command, you are officially off base with God. Yeah. Y'all yeah, see what he's saying there? So basically, as, as these Jewish men were, were growing, getting older, and their parents needed help, perhaps, and maybe they had a little extra funds, they had figured out a way to take those funds and dedicate them to God so they didn't have to do what with them? Take care of their parents. Right. And so Jesus is saying, your tradition of dedicating this to God is really just a guise so you don't have to, to follow the command of God and give of your earnings to support your family. That's hypocritical. That's terrible. That's not the way this was meant to work. And does that pragmatism ever come into the church? Of course. <laughs> that, that pragmatic approach to... And if you don't believe that, change, change these seats up Sunday and see what happens. Right. Right, and, and there's laughter there, but it's true too, isn't it? Yes. Or, and, um, or one preacher used to say, change the order of worship and watch what happens. Or, or 
or go against the bylaws for a pra for a reason sure. that's, that's right. you know, and I'm not that's advocating right. going against the bylaws, but what I'm simply saying is, is following God's word is more important. Absolutely. Amen. And hopefully yes. we have nothing that goes against God's <laughs> right. word and the bylaws, but right. simply, uh, we want to follow God's word. Right. But he, yeah, but his, his point here is, is excellent because what happens there is when you, when you get on a trajectory like that, uh, not only are you disobeying God's word, but you are actually, you're actually in idolatry and idolizing traditions. Yeah. So you, you eventually, you completely forget the word of God and you're focusing on the tradition. Mm. And, yeah. and then if you don't fix that, if you don't correct that, then when your children are born, what do they do? The exact Probably. same thing. And what do their children do? The exact same thing. And then what you do is you have generational lostness in the church because you have strayed so far away from the intent, from the heart of the law to some tradition that's, that's not, not right. If you, if you want just the most intense, uh, you know, condemnation from Jesus toward the Pharisees, <laughs> just go to Matthew chapter 23. The seven woes. Um, or let's say confrontation. Uh, I should use that word. I think that's better. But uh, yeah, the seven woes. Seven woes. Um, are intense. Seven woes. Yeah. All right, Pharisees and Sadducees, here we go. So the Pharisees. Now, you have got this. If you look at your notes that we gave you, it's under sex, S-E-C-T-S, and parties in Judaism. Uh, I numbered my pages with, with handwriting. It says page five. It'll be up at the top, Pharisees. And Dr. Crossley put this on there for you. It's been mentioned, Pharisees is mentioned a hundred times in the New Testament. One of the primary groups of antagonists that Christ has. So the Pharisees held that the oral law was given orally to Moses, to Joshua, to the elders, to the prophets, and then to the men of the great synagogue. So it starts with God, and it came down, passed down all the way to the great synagogue. Yep. Okay? The Pharisees were the what? Interpreters of the law. Okay? And, and, and this is where it gets slippery because the interpretation then becomes authoritative. And is interpretation authoritative? No, the word of God is authoritative, but you still have to interpret it, and that's where you've got to be real careful is how you interpret Scripture. That is why one of the reasons why I'm Southern Baptist, and I believe Colton's Southern Baptist, and Clayton's Southern Baptist, and all of you are Southern Baptist, is because we believe that the interpretation that we hold to in the, in the, in the Baptist church through the Baptist faith and message is the closest to the yeah. true heart of the Scripture. Do y'all yeah. follow me on that? That's why I'm sitting up here, and that's why I call myself a Southern Baptist, and that's why I'm okay with sending a pretty large portion of our tithes and offerings right. to the SBC on an annual basis, because I believe we're doing that right. Yeah. Now, the day we quit doing that, probably the day I quit being Southern Baptist. And I think something else to say just when it comes to interpretation, um, you know, just to clarify, there are not multiple interpretations of a text. There's one, there's one interpretation of a text. There's one intended meaning that, that the author was meaning when they were writing the text. Right. Now, does that mean that there's not multiple implications for right. a text? No. So there can be one interpretation, but there can be multiple ways that that truth speaks to our hearts. Right. Um, you know, one truth that comes out of God's word may hit me differently than it does Shelby, and it may convict us differently. Yes. And that same truth may send us out these doors going in, in different directions for God's glory yeah. that honors the text. Yeah, so. and there are, there are places... Uh, in the scripture that are that are very difficult to interpret, <clears throat> just like he's saying, which, which is one of the reasons why you have you have different denominations. Uh, different denominations will go to the text and they will interpret the text in different ways, 
And so people will cluster uh, in, in, your, in your denominational structure kind of what, with what they also, or what they believe the Spirit is telling them that the Scripture means. But you are absolutely right. That is one of the reasons why people tiptoe around the book of Revelation, Right? I mean, do you, do you see just, just dozens of preachers preaching the book of Revelation all the time? No. The reason why that is is because how many interpretations are there? I mean, accepted orthodox interpretations of the book of Revelation. Four. Four interpretations. Four interpretations. Are all those right? No. no. There's only just one. like he said, there's <laughs> only one that's right. But we're not sure that we've got it right, so we have yeah. to approach that book with great humility, and we definitely don't want to do character assassin assassinations to other yeah. people that may have a different interpretation than we do because we just don't know. It's apocalyptic literature, it's highly symbolic, and it's very difficult to interpret in certain areas. Well, this becomes a real problem when, and this is the reason I'm harping on this point for a minute, this becomes a real problem when you, know, you have, let's say, a loving brother or sister uh, who comes to another, you know, hopefully Matthew 18 is going to come to your mind. They come to a brother or sister and they say, hey, look, I, you know, we've hung out and I've, I've just noticed you, there's something going on in your life, you know, and, and I just feel like this is, this is taking you down a bad path, a sinful path, and, and I, I want to help you. Like, help me. I want to walk with you. And, and what could they say to you? They could say, well, that's your interpretation of the Bible. Right. That's not my interpretation. That's not the way I understand right. it. And it's like, well, okay. Well, now we have, a, have to have a real conversation about what does that verse actually mean if we're going to be serious about God's word because I want to help you. And if you're just thinking, okay, well, that's your interpretation. You know, you, that's what you believe, and I believe this. That's when it becomes a real, practically, it a real issue. And, and that, again, that is exactly yeah. why you have, um, you know, you have church splits and denominational splits is because some, sometimes... I mean, I, mean, I mean, you know the war we had in Southern Baptist life 20, 30 years ago. What was it over? Whether the word of God was what? True or not? Yep. I mean, is it, is it inerrancy? No. Is the Bible truly inerrant? Is every word in the scripture true? What do you believe about that tonight, Baptist? Yes, yes absolutely. But there, is a, there were a ton of other people at that time that did not believe that, that were underneath the Southern Baptist Convention banner. And so we had a big meeting, which is thank God for the Southern Baptist Convention. We had a big, we had a big convention meeting. Everybody voted. We voted to say, yes, it is. And the po folks that disagreed went somewhere else. That's, that's, I mean, that's the way it works. And, and one other thing to say about this, and then I'm done on this. No, topic, you're not. But, yeah, probably not. But, um, but I do think that it's important to realize if, how do we approach one another if we do have a disagreement about the text? In love and patience. And humility. Absolutely. Right? We, don't, we don't bash each other nope. over the head. We don't use the sword of God as a literal sword of God <laughs> and like smack each other, right? We don't do that. We, we, we don't go to war with each other. Man, you know, what, what, the, what the outside world needs to see the church do is maturely come together. And, and here's the greatest test. If I have a disagreement with you, we disagree over a portion of scripture, a passage, the greatest thing we could do is say, hey, Let's, let's grab some coffee and, like, let's just talk about it. Let's pray over it. And, look, at the end of the day, if it's not, like, a, an essential doctrine, right. like, I, my, my side is that I believe Jesus alone saves you and you believe that it's Jesus plus good works, okay, if that's the case, then we've got a real issue that we, we're, we're going to we're gonna have to work through or you're going to have to uh, leave. That's I right. mean, because yeah. that's, that's something to yeah. divide on. Absolutely. But if it's something that's like, you know, all-millennialism versus post-millennialism, yep. hey, look, you know, yep. we can, I'm a pan-millennialist. It's all going to pan out in the end. So, I mean, we're, you know, you've heard that joke a hundred times, but there it is. <laughs> well, so. that's just because we're in the field, man, you know. <laughs> right. So, yo, yes. 
Look at what? Man, that's a, you, you mean one that doesn't matter or, or one that's serious? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I think in those cases, like we're the, we that are called to the pastorate, to the eldership, what, the oversight, whatever you want to call it, whatever term, biblical term you want to use, we have no choice but to stand true on what we believe the Scripture says. Uh, that's why, and Jesus did the same thing, and, and, the, and the tr- all true Israel has done the same thing throughout life. And we have to be willing, which I am and which I have proven through the things I've been through, I will stand firm on the Scripture. And I really, I, I love you, and I don't, I'm not going to persecute you because you believe differently, but I'm not budging on my position. You can fire me, you can slander me, you can call me whatever you want to. I, I will go to my death for the truth of this book. Right. Period. Right. And you I mean, know, that's... that's you know, I, I, so, so to kind of answer the question in a different angle, I, I think that Martin Luther, when he stood before the council that died of worms, and he said, uh, here I stand and I can do no other, because he was standing on God's grace that Jesus Christ uh, came to save sinners and that it was through his grace alone that sinners were saved. And that's what he was standing on, the truth of God's word. And that's what he said, I, here I stand and I can do no other. And I think that moment honored God. Yeah. And it really challenged the authorities that be to say, am I going to believe this man or am I going to fall back into disbelief and fight God's truth? Yeah. And, and I, think that's God, I think that honors God. And there's a moment where Christians, we do have to lovingly, gently, as we always can be, but boldly, right? I, th- I think that's something we miss. Christians can be bold um, and loving at the same time. And we can say to the culture, hey, look, there's a more beautiful way here. Like, Nobody's attracted to a jellyback Christian that can't, like, you know, somebody who, people are attracted to a, a man or a woman who, who loves God, has a passion for the Lord, and is willing to stand for that. That's why so many people followed Luther in the Reformation That's and right. followed after him, because they were like, this is a guy who actually believes what he yeah. says he believes. Like, I'm going to follow him. We well, have yeah, modern day John MacArthur, Adrian Rogers. <laughs> yeah, right. While they had followings of people who loved them, I mean, some people were in idolatry, but others loved them because they, in a culture, in a lost and crooked, wicked generation, they actually stood for truth well, and, li- and lived it out. That was Paul, right? Let's use yep. a biblical example. That was Paul. I mean, he stood. And, and, and here's the cool thing about Paul. Paul was loving, right? You cannot accuse Paul of not being loving. He was loving. He was kind. He always offered the gospel. Like even when he stood before the council, right? When he stood before Felix and the rest of them, he, he, offered, he, he shared the gospel with them, which was the most yeah. loving thing he could do. Right, right. So. The, the, his counselor heart just comes out when he's talking to him. Yeah, uh, uh, First Timothy, uh, y'all, y'all, we can all go there right quick since David's called that up. That's a great passage. First uh, Timothy, let's see, chapter 2, let's see here, maybe. It's First Timothy uh, 1. Is it First Timothy 1? First Timothy 1, yeah. Let's see. Let's see here. Uh, it's right there in... Um, in four. Oh, chapter four? No, no, no. Verse, uh, chapter one, verses three through like um, seven kind of hit on it. Yeah. Y'all keep looking there. I think it may be Second Timothy. Hang on. The one that I'm thinking about that uh, David was talking about. Yeah, so in, uh, just so you know, in, 
in chapter 1, verse 6, it says, well, actually, let's go to verse 5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Uh, verse 6, certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, uh, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying uh, or the things about which they make confident assertions. And actually, you can back it up to uh, verse 3 as well. Uh, Paul, he encourages Timothy, As I urge you, when I, was, uh, when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote uh, speculations rather than the stewardship from yep. God uh, that is by faith. Exact, and then it, I think the exact one he was talking about when he said quarrel, that made my mind went straight to it. But it's second, it's second Timothy, not first. If you look at Second Timothy chapter 2, the passage that goes right along with what you just said is 2 Timothy 2, beginning, you can begin in verse 22 and go all the way down, but specifically verse 24. 2 Timothy 2, 24, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Is that what you're talking about, David? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, foolish, ignorant, which is, I mean, it's almost exactly what, just in yeah. a different chapter. Yeah. Because in, in both, yeah. of those, both of those books, he's trying to prepare Timothy for Ephesus. There are false teachers there, and he's trying to, to prepare Timothy for, for life without him. Second Timothy was certainly right before Paul was about to be martyred. It was right. a few years after First Timothy, but, but both of the books are, are very comparable. Uh, but yeah, I mean, and, and, and I'm going to tell you what, it, it's hard. I mean, it, it's hard to, to, to deal with people that believe they are right and believe you are wrong, and you're sitting here holding the Bible and trying to teach them the truth, but they don't believe that, that you're trying to teach them the truth. They don't have a Bible in their hands, but they're just nonstop coming at you, yeah. telling you it's wrong, yelling at you, calling you names, all this kind of stuff. And, that, and yet the, the Word of God tells us we've got to stand right there, not yell back, not call them names, yeah. but, but be loving, be gentle, and not quarrel. In other words, let them yell, scream, and shout until, until they do what? Shut up, right? Until yeah. they give out. Yeah. And then once they've given out, maybe let it cool down, think about everything they've said, and then go back and try to, and try to engage them again and get them to see your point. Yeah, and I, and I think here, too, one other thing to be said. There is a time to defend the faith. There is a time to, to, to enter the discussion, you know, and, and to defend it. I, I think that uh, when, when the sheep are in trouble, when they're hearing, Paul did this, right? Paul argued. I mean, you look at Galatians, and he says, we stayed and we argued it out with, we duped it out with these dudes until they left, right? Because he knew the sheep were in trouble. Well, even Peter, I mean, confronted him. I mean, when he right. was clearly in the wrong. Right. Uh, in so there's a time, there's a time to disagree. But here's sure. another thing to know. I, I think there's, you guys all know this, there's the people who just want to show how smart they are. <laughs> and they, and, and you enter into a conversation and it's, it doesn't have anything to do about genuine pursuit of truth. Uh, all it has to do with is, hey, who's the smarter person Put here? you in your place. Right. And so for me, I'm like, okay, in this conversation, I'll, I'll talk with you for a minute. But, but I, I, I hate to say it's almost like a casting your pearls before pigs kind of moment. But yeah. it's almost like a, 
hey, we just, you know, I, I can see this isn't really going anywhere. It's not leading to any redemptive purpose. Um, you know, well, if all they're going to do is berate you the whole time, right. never like listen to what you're trying to say and actually, right. and actually try to understand and apply it to their worldview. I mean, you, it's, and, and you see this in seminary, right? That, sure. this, this is the great example, right? When two seminarians are, you know, they think that they like are the smartest people that ever lived on the earth and then they start duking it out, shouting at each other. And it's just like, man, this is, this is just, this is not helping the witness of Christ. This is hurting it, right? Because you're not arguing for any other sake, but just to prove your theological point. And yep. at that point, it's just, yep. yeah, it's, it's unattractive. So. Which, I mean, in the Pharisee, all this talking about, I mean, that, that's the whole thing you see between Jesus and the Pharisees, do you not? You see Jesus coming from the perspective of, of the Son of God, knowing the true heart of the Old Testament, and the Pharisees who are trying to cling to what? those oral traditions on top of the law, and that's why they clash so hard. So the, so the Pharisees it. themselves, uh, the, the word itself means separatist. Now, that's really ironic. You want to know why that's ironic? Do you know where we came from? Anybody know where we came from? Y'all remember that Baptist. boat called the Mayflower? You know who was on that boat? Puritans, which were actually English separatists. Yep. So they were separatists. And, and why, did they, why did they separate? Because they wanted to be what? Right. They were being persecuted by the, by, by the Church of England, but they wanted, they wanted, to, they wanted to, to be able to be baptized. They wanted, well, they wanted to be baptized. They didn't want to be persecuted for their faith. And so they snuck on that boat, and they, and they came across the ocean to come to America seeking religious freedom. So they were actually called English separatists. Yep, yep. So there, there they are. They're the Pharisees. How do you like that? Jim, I want to see you dressed like that this Sunday. Could you do that for us? <laughs> He's going to have to get busy growing a beard. Yeah. Could y'all imagine wearing that on a daily basis? I just cannot imagine that. But that's, that's a Pharisee right there. There's, and that, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Now, that, right, that picture right there, who saw The Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson? Did y'all see that? The movie was really good. Had some different, had some theology in it that was weird. But, I mean, overall, it was a great movie. Um, but that picture right there came, I believe that's when they were in the praetorium with Pilate on his judgment seat with uh, Jesus and Barabbas. I think that was right before that moment, or maybe Herod. I can't remember where, which one it was, but that, that's pretty much how they looked. All right, so now the Sadducees, let's go there. The Sadducees rejected all of the Pharisees' beliefs, holding to only the law, meaning the Pentateuch. Now, that sounds good, doesn't it? That sounds good. No oral tradition built on top of it a whole lot. But, but no, not exactly. Because they denied what? The spirit world of angels. Wow. How could they miss that in the Old Testament? Immortality. I mean, was Elijah not taken up into the clouds? I mean, what about Enoch? How'd they miss that? Resurrection from the dead. While the Pharisees affirmed all these doctrines. So who, now all of a sudden, who, who are you identifying with? Who are we identifying with tonight? The Pharisees. The yeah. Pharisees yeah. I mean, actually, when you study this stuff in depth, the average run-of-the-mill Baptist in America fits the Pharisee mold to perfection. And if you don't think you have traditions pumping through your hearts, and I don't have traditions pumping through my hearts, we do. Yeah. We really do. We've got them. You know, it's so funny with the Sadducees. I, I just, I think it's... Funny they're argument. sad. They're sad. They're sad. They really are. It's not funny, actually. It's really depressing. Um, but the, the argument that they bring to Jesus, right? 
I mean, it's one of the saddest. Saddest. Okay. I got. I got with you. It's with one you, of man. the saddest moments because they're like they bring this crazy, ridiculous, hypothetical argument about like, well, if a brother, uh, you know, if a oh, oh, all marries, those. Uh, you know, and she die, he dies, and then uh, the next brother has to remarry, and then he dies, and then the seven next times, brother, and then it happens seven times. Jesus is like, I mean, I just I'm putting that country accent with it because it's just so crazy. This this hypothetical deal that they give to Jesus, I mean. Jesus had to put up with a lot of, of, yeah, I won't use the word, you know, but <laughs> idiocy was what I was thinking. But, I mean, for the fact, I mean, and Jesus was patient. He answered their question. I mean, it's just, it's incredible to me. Yep. This, this is how much they hated Jesus. They, yeah, they, they come did. with this terrible with story. Awful, awful question. To challenge him about the resurrection. Yeah. And he's like, you don't know the law because, and you don't know the word of God because there will neither be marriage uh, or you know, You'll whatever. Be a, as like the angels, and not be given or given away. And marriage. he tells them, which is incredible. He says, you know, that God is not called, uh, you know, the God of the dead. He's called the God of Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob. So yeah. I mean, it's incredible. He's saying they're they're living. Yeah. See? Yep. So anyway. So the fair. Yes, sir. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Well, that's what I mean. When you begin, like the Sadducees were really were really more focused around the temple. Um, they were most of them were from the uh, aristocracy, the, the ruling class, and that's one of the things that that uh, you know that wealth begins to do to you is is wealth will begin to give you a perverted worldview because you kind of become a chameleon. It's like whatever I need to do to make this person happy to get their money, whatever I need to do to make this person happy to get their money, whatever whoever I need to be to make this person happy and get their money. That's what happens. And so that's, you get this contradictory worldview that, you know, that, that doesn't line up. It's kind of like the song, you know, you've got to stand for something or you'll fall for anything. That, that's right. true. I mean, that is right. true. So the Pharisees were called the separatists. Yeah. The Sadducees were called the righteous ones. And there they are. Now, that's a little blurry. I know I tried to clean it up for you, but I couldn't. Now, the Pharisees are on the right. The Sadducees are on the left. It, it's, I mean, if you look at pictures from, from history, to me, it's hard to pick them out. Uh, the main thing is the phylacteries on the uh, on the on the Pharisees are really long. That 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 hood that they wear that goes all the way down. You normally don't see the Sadducees wearing that. They're more a robe with a staff and some kind of like like you know some type of ironic you know hat on their head or something. Yeah. But uh, but that that was the best picture I could find where there was a distinction between the two. All right. So you will find references to the Pharisees in Luke seven thirty nine, Luke fifteen two, Matthew nine eleven. And many other places, uh, Sadducees are mentioned in Matthew 16, Matthew 16, 1, 16 11, Matthew 16, 1, uh, 22, 23, and so forth. I didn't put, put all those citations in there. You can look those up if you want. And anybody that has spent any amount of time reading the New Testament, I, I mean, in the Gospels, I mean, you see these guys' names on every other page. I mean, this is no surprise to you. What right. is helpful, though, is to understand where they came from, what they believed, and, and the fact that they were kind of kind of born from the intertestamental period and, and all the chaos in that, and then they were kind of like set free with the Pax, Pax Romana. Yep. The scribes, now these guys are interesting, and th this studying the scribes um, is, is helpful because you just kind of, when you're reading them in the text, I don't know about y'all, but you just kind of pass by them. Well, those are the guys that just, you know, they just copy the, they just copy the text. That's all they do. You know, well, no, not exactly. Uh, they do more than that. 
uh, the scribes were very authoritative, and, and chances are the scribes is who the Pharisees and the Sadducees went to for their knowledge. So, it, like, us being theologians, who's that term loosely, right? Yeah, right, right, right. Us being theologians, I mean, Colton and I, when we want to study something, I'm not a language scholar. Uh, I, I took Greek and I took Hebrew, and if I had to, I could get a book out and figure it out if I had to. But we have got a whole nother, nother uh group of scholars out there that that do all that for us so we don't have to spend the time to do that so we can take it and apply it and spend time getting to know you and teaching you the scriptures well the scribes kind of played that role in jesus day so they would kind of be like the modern day scholar in the seminary would have been the scribe he, he's making sure that everything's copied the right way. He's making sure things are preserved and that, they're, and that they're right. And then the Pharisees and the Sadducees would go to the scribe for their theology. And if they had a question that they couldn't right. answer or the, or the Sadducees and the... I bet you the scribe really came out of their fighting. Well, you know what, I th- yeah, you know what I'm saying? Like, like, we got to have somebody to settle this argument. Well, the, the, the scribe will, you know, will decide yeah, what it is. And, and, and if I'm not mistaken, <clears throat> when, it, when it's listed as teacher, when they're a teacher of the law, it's also it's referring to a scribe, right? Yeah, right. Um, yeah, and, and you see the scribes, they do come against Jesus a few yeah. times. And uh, probably in the school of Ezra, you know. Yeah. So, all right, we gotta, we got to uh, pick up the pace a little bit, y'all. It's almost 7 o'clock. Yes, Jack. That's a great question. I don't know the answer to that. Okay. So, so each each sect had had their own scribes. It very well may be. It very well may be. Well, the Pharisees and the scribes have their different uh, views of Scripture, so certainly maybe they had some of their, or the Pharisees and Sadducees. So maybe they had their own scribes for each kind of difference in theological. Interpretation. Yeah. Yeah. Thank yeah. you for that, bro. That's good. All right. Let's. Let me. I'm gonna start reading good. kind of fast, so we can. It'll be. It'll be choir time here in just a little bit. We got to do prayer too. So y'all. Y'all just uh, put Hang on your seatbelts. From time of the Babylonian captivity, a new line of scribes developed who were not just transcribers or secretaries, but a new body of men who became the expounders, the guardians, and teachers of the Scripture. So they became a distinguished order in the nation. So they carried a lot of authority. So they must be distinguished from the priests and the Pharisees. They are mentioned in the scriptures along with the Pharisees uh, in those passages. And, but this does not mean that they were alike or even together in, or together in function. Our Lord, Jesus, denounces the scribes because of their corruption and outward piousness. So the scribes got scathed by Jesus too. But woe to you, scribes! Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice a child of what? Hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? That's he's attacking those traditions. And you say if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. I mean, he's just just ripping them, Mm. right? Oh, yeah. All right, the synagogue. This is not a word... Excuse me, there is not a word about synagogues in the Old Testament. Did y'all notice that? Plenty of talk about what? The temple, 
but nothing about synagogues. But as soon as we start in the New Testament, we find references to the synagogue everywhere. So the synagogue did not exist before the captivity, but it seems to have originated during that time when the Jews totally turned away from idolatry. Now, how, how interesting is that? Because what did most Jews do to the temple? They, can, they, were, they were in idolatry toward the temple, so the temple is now destroyed, no more temple, no more idolatry. <clears throat> so there was no longer a Jewish temple, and they needed and longed for the reading of the scriptures. So this is believed to be the way the synagogue came into being. Now here's a picture of a synagogue that I found online. Now this right here is actually a building that was built to be a synagogue. Uh, there were two types, history testifies to. One was one that was kind of built to be a synagogue, and then one was more like a house that kind of doubled as a synagogue. So that's the one that was built as a synagogue. There's the house that was kind of used as a synagogue. I found those for you online today. So I thought that was really interesting. Now, I knew they had, they, I knew they had some that, that were built into synagogues because you can yeah. go to Bible atlases and they've got pictures of the ruins, you know, yeah. all over, all over the, uh, the, uh, the ancient, you know, the ancient world. But, uh, but the homes, I, I, didn't, I didn't realize that they were like that. So that's really interesting. All right. So synagogue discourses were common in our Lord's time. You know that. Uh, the synagogue was congregational. How about that? What does that mean? That means it was geared toward the congregation. It was not run by priests. It was run by the congregation, by local Jews. Interesting. So the great institution of preaching had its beginning where? That's what we believe, that that's where the rise of the kerygma, the Greek word for preaching and proclamation, that's where the rise of that came from. Was, and, and what was that contingent upon or dependent upon? The diaspora, right? Everybody being spread out. It's almost like God planned it that way, amen? God spread them all out. Jesus comes. Then the synagogues are out there ready for what to happen in every one of them. Preaching of the gospel. Everywhere Paul goes in the book of Acts, where does he go first if it exists in the community? Synagogue what does Jesus first. Jesus go to? Synagogue. Yeah. Synagogue. Read his first scripture in the synagogue. Yep. All right. It was from this background that the early Christian church is organized by the apostles, took its main form of worship. The titles give to the New Testament church leaders, elders, bishops, deacons are all carried over from the synagogue. The Sanhedrin, that, doesn't that word just like make the hair on the back of your neck stand up when you hear that? There's another Jewish institution called the Sanhedrin, which is in the New Testament times, was the supreme civil and religious tribunal of the Jewish nation. With that body must lie the real responsibility for what? Crucifying Jesus, the Sanhedrin. In fact, they... Um, Everything that they did was pretty much illegal uh, surrounding Jesus' death. Pontius Pilate was just a rubber stamp of imperial Rome because if they had done something to Jesus without Caesar's approval, uh, they would all have been in deep trouble and maybe even attacked and put to death by Rome. Uh, Rome took capital punishment very seriously. Uh, and so that, that would have been a big mistake if they, had, if they had gone after Jesus without Rome. There's a picture of the Sanhedrin. Now, if you notice, the Sanhedrin, where was it? It was in the temple. See the temple there? Down there to the side, the chamber where, where it originated was there, or Herod's temple. And then there would have probably been uh, 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 smaller versions of it scattered around everywhere. So. Are they the Chipotle <laughs> No. No, they are not. <laughs> no, indeed. No, indeed. All right. The Sanhedrin is referred to in all of the following verses, even though the Greek word sunidrion is translated council. And there's all of the citations for the Sanhedrin. 
Uh, the Sanhedrin was made up of the high priest, 24 chief priests who represented the 24 orders of the priesthood. Uh, do you remember when we studied about Zechariah and uh, John the, the vision that he got in the temple? One of those 24 orders, Zechariah was one of those 24 orders, and they speculate there may have been as many as 18,000 priests in the priesthood during that time when Zechariah was chosen. Uh, called the elders of the people. There were 24 elders of the people and 22 scribes who interpreted the law in both religious and civil matters. So a total of how many members? 71. Could you imagine, could you imagine walking into a chamber with 71 know-it-all theological experts and have to answer theological questions by them at random? <laughs> <laughs> the U.S. Senate. So that, I, I just... They're not theological. They're not theological, but, but, I, but I, I, know, I know the point you're making. All right, is there a more tragic verse in history of Israel than this one? Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found how many? None. Though many false witnesses came forward and, and last two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. They had to have the sanction of Pilate for the penalty they imposed on Jesus. They met illegally in the high priest's palace instead of in his own council hall. All their actions surrounding the death of Christ were illegal and wrong. That's why he said, whoever sent you is, is, is guilty of a greater sin than you are, which would be the Sanhedrin. With this brief and incomplete background, we can see some of the institutions that were established during the first 400 year, during, the, during this 400 year period between Malachi and Matthew. For more material, you can see Josephus and 1st, 2nd Maccabees, and we've talked about that uh, ever since we started. So, yeah. all right, questions, and we're over. You ready? Now, I made these questions up, okay? Ooh. So they're going to be really hard. I'm kidding, they're really easy. <laughs> so, what were the two bookends of intertestamental period? Two bookends. Man, all right. The prophet, Malachi, and the preaching of John the Baptist. How many years was the intertestamental period? 400. Very good. Who were the two primary world powers that shaped the environment of the New Testament? Rome and Greek. Yep. Rome and Greece. Can you name a few things Rome did that helped spread the gospel? Roads. Okay, roads. What? Record keeping, military for safety, Pax Romana. What else? Buildings, structure, right? It goes along with roads, okay? Yeah. Who said, I am not afraid of an army of lions led by a sheep? I am afraid of an army of sheep led by a lion. Alexander the Great. I knew y'all would get that one. My boy. <laughs> That's, yeah, our man. That's our man. That's our man. That's Micah Alexander Hazard. He's middle name. It's named after him. What is the spreading of the Jews called? Diaspora, very good. The primary things Jesus condemned the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Zealots was the what? Yes, which is another way to say that's, yeah, the oral law. A matter of hypocrisy, too. Yeah, a matter of hypocrisy of putting the oral law equal to the word of God. Exactly. That's it. All right, very good. Excellent, excellent session tonight, everybody. Thank you so much for, for participating in this. I mean, it's just wonderful to hear y'all, like, actually have you ever answer known so questions. Much about, it's just great. Have I you ever known it. so much about the intertestamental period? 
No. Yeah. Okay. There. Was Man. this helpful? Amen. If it's helpful. Okay. Boom. It was helpful. Look at okay. There. Excellent. Yeah. All right. Good. We even got a hand raise. That's why we're doing this, man. We're doing this to try to try to be a help, not a harm. Okay. Uh, prayer requests. Let's start over here and go this way. This side. Prayer request. Prayer requests. Nell Jones is home but had three stints, so it sounds like it was a little worse than they thought, but she is home doing all right, so that's great. That is wonderful. Anybody else on this side? Yes. Okay, Jack, did you have your hand up? Your oldest son, Jason's wife. Okay. All right, anybody else on this side? Okay, this side. Prayer request. Everybody's silent. Yes, Lisa. Your daughter, Jamie. Decker, right? Okay. Uh, Tim. Yes. What's her name again? Christy. Clayton, that's right. Okay. Anybody else? Okay. Okay. You want to lead us tonight? Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead. Uh, also, just a reminder, uh, if we could have just anybody who would be willing to volunteer to stay after and help, help us move. move some chairs yep. and tables for the men's ministry meeting. Shouldn't take long. Yeah. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this evening, and um, I, I, I hope it feels like everyone was pleasantly surprised by going through and learning about the intertestamental period. I know that it's not technically in your word, but there are allusions to it in your word. Uh, Lord, and I, I thank you that we have taken some time just to learn some very important history uh, that we might better understand, uh, God, your, your beautiful, glorious word, God. Uh, and I pray that it would be deeply rooted in our hearts uh, and that we would take it outside of these walls of God because it is living and active, uh, Lord, like a double-edged sword that, that can pierce through heart and bone and marrow, uh, Lord, and can discern the thoughts of the soul, O oh Lord. And certainly we have a great power in our hands and certainly through the help of your Holy Spirit dwelling in us, God, as we try uh, with all of our might to speak your word in truth and in love uh, to a world that's lost and dying. And God, I do just pray, since we talked about it a lot tonight, that you would help us to approach this world uh, the way you did, Christ. 
Lord, you ask good questions. Uh, Lord, you uh, you were there. You were incarnate in flesh uh, amongst the people. And I pray that we would be too, Lord, that we would, uh, God, come alongside of those who are struggling, those who are lost, and that we would shine the light of you, Christ, into their lives uh, through speaking the word, through showing the word, through demonstrations of, of good will and good deeds. Lord, help us to do that, Lord, that we would be salt and light in this place. I plead with you, God, that we would do that. Lord, there are so many prayer requests, and, and I just pray for each and every one of them. God, you understand, you know uh, the struggles of each person. God, I know that all of us can identify uh, with health struggles, oh God, and, and how much we worry when our bodies don't work right. And just to think that some on this list are going through major health concerns. And God, we certainly plead, I, I pray to you, Lord, and I plead that you would help those, uh, that you would help them to know that your presence is near. God, that they can draw on you for strength and comfort in their time of need, that they can cast all of their cares upon you because you care deeply for us, Lord. Um, and, and you don't even have to, but you do. And I thank you so much. that you, It's one of the greatest encouragements of my soul, oh God, that you love us, that you're present with us, uh, mainly that you have redeemed us from our sin. God, that we have a great hope that's coming for us one day. And I pray that these truths would be comforting to those who are going through real struggles right now, both health uh, health-wise, oh God, and maybe even just spiritually and mentally, uh, Lord, as well. Oh God, I pray for those who are going through depression, and I pray for those, oh God, who are on the mountaintop and they're rejoicing in life right now, oh God. I pray that they would give thanks to the one who has given them every good gift because it's come from you, oh God. Uh, Lord, we love you, and help us to walk outside of these doors ready to live out the gospel and what we say and what we do. Uh, Lord, it's in your heavenly name I pray all of these things. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Colin. Good night, everybody. Good night, Good night live feed, Facebook Live. Love you. See you, see you Sunday.